Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of The Mistholm Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality. Hello, and welcome to the Mistholm Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality. This audio tour guide is aware that this is your first visit to the museum. On behalf of the museum, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. The audio tour guide will be your window into the history of the museum and its exhibits today. If you would like an introduction to how the museum works, please continue breathing normally. Fantastic! The Mistholm Museum is a supernatural anthology show created by Dom Guilfoyle, set in the eponymous museum that features a collection of strange, mystical, and dangerous artifacts. The stories are told through an audio guide, voiced by Guilfoyle. As the nature of the various items are discussed, the lives of the people behind the artifacts are brought to life in stories that are sometimes creepy, sometimes amusing, sometimes melancholy, and sometimes gruesome. The show has just started its fifth season and has evolved since its inception. The first episode, Irrevocable, introduces us to the guide, who is more than a mere recording. We also visit one exhibit, a collection of photographs of fairies. I spoke to Dom remotely from their home in Brisbane. You are the first Australian that I have had on my show. Happy to be here. I can't say quite the other way around because the US is very much my biggest audience. Something like 70% of my downloads come from the US. Yeah, the people I've talked to in the UK, for example, usually tell me that it's the US that's their largest market. So yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist, a creative person, and a writer. I've always kind of written stuff here and there before, but previously it was mostly theater-related stuff. Like I was in a small, I guess you'd call us a troupe or something, where we wrote surreal comedy plays and stuff. And I had intended for my career to be backstage in the theater world. So I was kind of like, oh yeah, plays, theater, that's kind of more where I expect to wind up. And then uh, I graduated from theater at the end of 2019. Uh, So you can kind of imagine how well that went if you're aware of recent world events. It's kind of one of those things though, where I've always been a bit of a pessimist. Writing was always, oh, wouldn't that be nice? Anyway, back to the real world. Uh, (laughs) And then the, uh, you know, I wrote things here and there as a kid and always thought, oh, maybe one day I'll write something. And then the world fell apart. And this idea that I'd had for an audio drama midway through 2019 is just like, oh, that's a fun side project I'll never get to. It was like, well, 
I guess this is all I have now. I'm going to pivot. <laughs> were you always a creative type, even when you were a kid? Yeah, I'd say so. I never knew what type I was, but I guess it always kind of came back to creative in one way or another. Maybe because I was never had as much of a pull towards anything else as I did towards yeah creative stuff. I've not many other skills in the creative arts other than writing, I guess performing as well. My parents had me playing the piano and stuff as a kid, but I just, I was never good at it. But writing, yeah, that always kind of came naturally, I guess. So you were studying technical theater in college? The degree is called technical production. And the idea is to learn everything about every part of being backstage or behind the scenes in theater and performing arts. So you learn stage management and lighting design and sound design. And the sound design part of it, it kind of became the part I was most interested in and thought, and I did a few sound designs for some shows. I had a friend who already had an indie podcast collective sort of thing. So it was just like, oh yeah, I've kind of got this skill set now I, and I can maybe use that to make some audio drama and edit the podcast myself, trade it out the theater part for the podcast part. The friend who had a podcast collective, is that, that's not canon production? Yes, that is. My friend Zane, who pretty much everyone else who's been involved in Miss Tome has been someone I knew from doing theater stuff in Brisbane, where I live. And Zane, I had known through Friends of Friends, and then we worked on a show together, I guessed on a couple of podcasts with the network. And then while I was on uh, an internship with a theatre in Sydney, I woke up and had the intro to Miss Time almost kind of already formed by the time I was at the theatre. It kind of like came to me in the shower and I texted mm -hmm. Zane and just like, hello and welcome to the Mistone Museum of Mystery, Morbidity or Mortality. Just the whole intro spiel. And Zane was like, I'd like to go there. And that's kind of where it came from. Zane's deal and That's Not Canon's deal is not about being like a podcast network. It's a collective and it's sharing the tools and letting people, if you've got an idea, it's just like, well, yeah, you can be in the network. Just making sure people can do what they want to and have the tools to do it. So it was never a question of, oh, I don't know, that's a good idea, Dom. It was, hey, you want to do a podcast? Cool. That sounds fun. How did you decide, oh, I want to make an audio drama? I wanted to do something and podcasting was there. I was coming up with ideas and throwing them away and I didn't feel like I wanted to do a podcast podcast or anything where we talk about something. I had a few ideas that came and went and I've forgotten about. I made a short film at one point years ago and I was like, what if I adapted that script for an audio drama, sent that to Zane and Zane was like, yeah, you can do that. And then I never did. The amazing part of the Mist Home story is that I actually did it and actually followed through on it, frankly. <laughs> That's an accomplishment, right? That's something to celebrate. A lot of people, oh, myself yeah. included, have projects sitting on the hard drive that never end up seeing the light of day just because they're half-formed ideas that never get followed through on. Yeah, that is the main thing that I think most people kind of almost don't realize is when they say, oh, it's amazing that you've done this. I could never do this. And it's like the only difference between me and most other people who haven't done it is that I've done it. Like yeah. other people probably have better ideas. They could probably make a better show than me, but they didn't. I'm not usually the sort of person to have the level of confidence to just do it. A main part of my relationship with Zane as a creative is that I send Zane a script for Zane to give notes. And Zane's note is almost always just like, yeah, that's good. Cool. I guess it's good then, because I never know if my stuff is actually any good. But the fact that I've shown it to someone, that kind of makes it real now. And yeah. now there's someone to not hold me to account, but, oh, this doesn't just exist in my head. Well, I guess I'd better keep working on it then. And I think yeah. that's an important thing to have, a reason to actually make it happen. What is it about this project that allowed you to follow through and finish it? 
Well, it, I mean, there's two things. There's the fact that, yeah, I have someone out there who has read it and I'm just like, well, if I let this one fall away, then someone knows about it. And there's also the format that I created with Mist Home. I was very intentional in the setup and the style of Mist Home that because it's kind of semi-anthology, I can kind of have almost any kind of story in Mist Home. So I can just come up with an idea and be like, yeah, that probably fits in Mist Home. And then I don't have to force myself to come up with certain ideas or write in a certain way. Yeah. I can come up with an idea and be like, yeah, that fits in because I've given myself a very broad tone. And it's also the anthology, right? So you can have little short stories, little bites yeah. that are easier to produce sometimes than something big. A big part of getting Mist Home started, the consideration of what can I do or what do I think I can do was a big part of like the world building. Like, well, I don't know if I can get other people to be involved in this or if I want to direct other people or anything. So, all right, in the first couple of seasons, it's just a single character. It's just me. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know if I can spin out a broader narrative. I wasn't sure if I could make that work at first. So, okay, it's anthology. And I just come up with what I thought of as my limitations and made that part of the fiction and made that made it not a limitation, but a strength, I guess. Most museums make do with pre-recorded audio guides or by simply printing out details and putting them on the wall near exhibits. Here, however, the details surrounding some exhibits tend to shift or develop a bit too much for such a rigid system, whereas some others cannot, under any circumstances, be in close proximity to the written word. So, the clever folks in the patronage department came up with this system, where our guests simply download a copy of the tour guide and get live commentary on all our exhibits, as well as live announcements and or security alerts all in the one place. Please note that if you notice your version of the audio tour guide behaving oddly, kindly ensure that you dispose of your audio device in the nearest incinerator at the earliest convenience. Why don't you tell me what the Mistholm Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality is, in your own words? Uh, for starters, it's a far too long title. That's one of my <laughs> it's ridiculously long name. What it is has kind of grown and shifted over time. I think at this point in the series, and with with the context of what I've written and what has been produced, it's kind of the story of an audio tour guide for a museum becoming a person. What starts out as an anthology of weird fiction stories set in a museum of strange exhibits over time unfolds into a broader narrative and just grows from there. Where did this idea come from for you? I had that intro and that was almost unchanged. And then from there, like the show could have gone in a number of different ways. Like I talked about it with Zane and percolated it is what I tend to call when I'm just kind of mulling over an idea in my head for a long time. There were a few different shows that it could have went up being. There was a version where like Zane was really interested in an idea I had where it's like, oh, are there other museums, like a government version of museum that's kind of got a CIA vibe or something? And that didn't wind up being the vibe of the show, but it was just really all grew from what is the show that this intro that I've come up with is the intro to, which in hindsight is a strange way to <laughs> come up with the show. But yeah, it has a very particular tone of wry parody that you see in mm. like Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. Douglas Adams was definitely an influence on me yeah. as, a, as a kid. Yeah. There's this slightly tongue-in-cheek, creepy, but also aware of its own creepiness and funny but scary kind of tone. Do you have any particular influences beside Douglas Adams? 
that kind of English humor, I guess, as much as I think that Miss Toad Museum of blah, blah, blah is too long in hindsight, I do think it kind of informs you of the sort of show it's going to be before you go in. It's a little bit verbose and it's got the alliteration and that sort of thing. The Douglas Adams of it, or maybe a series of unfortunate events actually kind of has that sort yeah. of tone as well. Those sorts of self-aware fiction, the anthology storytelling of it is kind of inspired by TV shows, I guess, like Fringe or The X-Files, you know, where sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes the best episodes of those shows are the ones where they use the anthology to tell you something about the characters. In the first episode, we meet the audio guide, who is voiced by you, who ushers us through various exhibits in the museum itself, talks about them, puts them in context for us. The first episode tells us a bit about the guide itself. The guide talks about itself. And it also introduces us to one exhibit, that of some photos of fairies taken by Zelda and Mary Chiswick. On display here, we have a collection of cute fairies, gnomes, and other assorted fey creatures, all made from cardboard, of course, as well as several black and white photographs of two young girls posing and playing with them. Though their colours have faded with time, they were originally quite colourful resplendent with purples and pinks and golds. This was a charming, yet unnecessary, detail added by their creators, a pair of young English girls who created them as a sort of prank in the early 20th century, whereby they used their father's camera to photograph each other playing and interacting with the creatures and pass the resulting photographs off as real. However, if you will look closely, you may notice that some of the creatures in the photographs are not among the collection of cardboard figures on display. This is because, with her dying breath, the elder of the two girls swore that some of the fairies they photographed were, in fact, real. There are other episodes that come later where you have multiple exhibits that mm. the guide walks you through. I want to come back and talk about the first episode in just a second, but I'm also curious as to what your thoughts were on how you decide what kind of stories to tell in these episodes. It's largely a matter of that I don't write the episodes in order, especially for the exhibit stories. I write them all standalone and then toward the end of a season's production, because I write the whole season, get it all sorted, and then I start releasing. So I write stories standalone based on an idea that's come to me, or I have tiers on my Patreon where listeners of a certain tier can submit what they would like an exhibit to be based around. Often it's just like a kernel of an idea that I just percolate and I let that grow. Come up with a story, write it down. And at the end of the season, I look at what stories I've written and what relationship they might have to uh, narrative sequences, the parts that are characters in the broader plot. And I try to have standalone stories that might reflect something about the story or match the peaks and valleys of the season, you know, stories that either complement or counterpoint the what's going on in the narrative. And also there's just the matter I try to have the episodes roughly between 20 and 30 minutes. So it's also a matter of length where it's, uh, oh, this story's pretty long, that'll have to be a standalone or this one will be, yeah. Uh, and also sometimes when I come up with an idea, I also am just like, well, this is an idea that doesn't have a full length story in it or this one Actually, I think this could be like a quite character-motivated narrative with a beginning and middle and end. When you're coming with your ideas, do you start with an object and then come up with a story about the object, or is it the other way around, or how does that work? 
Yeah, usually it's the object, especially early on and still sometimes these days. I like to have the stories based around not just an exhibit, but like an urban legend or a myth or even like in the, a true story, which is in the first episode is the fairies is based on the true story of the Cottingley fairies, which is little girls fake some fairies. And I was like, oh, but what if the fairies were real? You know, in the second episode, I had a riff on the man who'd met the devil at Crossroads and learn to play the guitar. Some of the time it is, I see an object at the corner of my eye. And I'm like, ah, that'll be my next story, <laughs> which sometimes you have something where it's just, oh, it's a lantern. I was on some sort of Wikipedia rabbit hole and I found myself looking at Ivan Ivanovich, the test dummy that the Soviets used in their, their rocket launches, that sort of thing. It's like, well, what if that, yeah. what if Ivan Ivanovich was a real man or it came to life or something like that? There are definitely ones where I come up with an object and I'm like, actually, that's a dud. But more often than you think, I, th I think it's, yeah, I, st I find an object and then, hmm, what's the story that comes out of this? As you said, the first episode is a retelling of the Cottingly Fairies story. Historically, these were some girls who faked photos of fairies in their garden. You tell the story of a different family. Zelda and Mary Chiswick are the two girls in this story. In order to get back at their mother, they stage some photos of fairies in a nearby river uh, because their mother believes that the fairies really are there. What happens is that they show the photos and everyone believes they are real. Zelda wants to keep the secret from everyone. She wants to perpetuate the hoax, whereas Mary wants to tell the truth. She's feeling guilty. But when Mary does reveal the truth, Zelda flies into her rage and accidentally kills her in the river, drowns her. But then what happens is that real fairies show up and bring Mary back to life. She does not remember the attack. And so Zelda ends up carrying the secret to her death. Zelda said nothing. She was too furious for words. She didn't speak to Mary for the rest of the week. Then, the next Sunday, when the family stayed home from church to avoid the embarrassment of seeing the rest of the village, Zelda approached Mary with excitement there were fairies after all. Down by the creek, right where they'd said they were, she'd seen them with her own two eyes. Any skepticism Mary might have felt was washed away by her relief that her sister was speaking to her again, so together they rushed down to the creek. Zelda pointed out a spot in the shallows, by the long grass, where she had seen the fairies not half an hour ago. Mary peered into the shadow of the grass, but couldn't see anything. Closer, Zelda told her. So Mary waded into the water and bent over the grass, squinting to see any sign of the creatures. Zelda shoved her, hard. She fell into the water, spluttering and gasping in shock. Before she could right herself, Zelda pushed her back into the water. Mary cried out in distress, begging her sister to stop. Zelda laughed bitterly. Stop? But they'd only just started. Why would they stop now? This is a really kind of nice fairy tale kind of story, no pun intended. What I like about this, and this seems to be a common theme throughout most of the Mist Home episodes, is that you introduce the item, the object in the museum, but the guy doesn't just simply tell you what it is. It tells an entire story around the particular thing as if a storyteller might. Talk to me about your approach to writing the narratives for the objects themselves. What is your storytelling philosophy? It is kind of has wound up being one of the main driving things in the Mistome story overall is 
the idea that they're not just things, they're not just exhibits, there's people and there's stories behind them. And that that becomes quite important as the audio tour guide becomes more of a a self-actualized person. Stories aren't just stories. They're people doing things. They're not just events happening. There's a reason behind them. It's almost as if the the objects themselves are really unimportant. I mean, they're the catalyst for the stories. Mm. The story of Irrevocable is about the faked fairy photos, but really it's about sisters and jealousy and anger and redemption and secrets. And that, to me, I think is the heart of the story itself. Whether there really are fairies or not is almost secondary to the story Mm. itself. Yeah, sure. And increasingly, after the first season, that becomes even more the case. I've realized that I wanted to write about people rather than events, especially going forward. I did have one person on Reddit be like, you don't capture what an actual audio tour guide is like. It's like you know, they're, they're much more clinical and uh, and <laughs> and descriptive in what they're doing. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry that the show's not for you, but I don't know if that sounds interesting to me, but that's not interesting for me to write. No, I... I would agree with you there. Are these intended to be moral stories, like a fairy tale that has a moral lesson? The early ones especially have that vibe to them, especially when you're working with common myths and that sort of thing. A lot of the time that is part of the story is a comeuppance or a moral, that sort of thing. It's not something I actively try to do. And in some cases, I try to avoid having that. I guess I don't want it to be about a moral. I just want it to feel balanced. I don't try to subvert expectations every time because then your expectations are never subverted. I try to not be predictable, but also I want to write stories that people will be like, yeah, that adds up. That counterbalances what we know about what's happened to these characters, especially in this first episode with the fairies. It's not a happy ending. Mary gets brought back to life, but nothing's really forgiven because it's never addressed. The elder sister spends the rest of her life living for nothing else but regret. And it's a tinge of bittersweetness, which I feel like works for the narrative. And I really like a bit of bittersweetness in an ending. I don't think that I was trying to go for a moral because, I mean, apart from anything else, I don't think that most people need to be taught, don't murder your sister in a blind rage. (laughs) Can you tell me what you mean by a story doesn't have to have a moral, but stories should be balanced? The ending for a character should be commensurate to how much we know about that character, whether or not they deserve a good or bad ending. There should be enough of an ending to their story for how much you know about them. So spend a bit of time with Mary and Zelda and then and now we kind of hear what the rest of their life was like. Yeah, the story should end in a way that feels appropriate to the threads that were put down from the beginning, Hmm. that maybe when you look back on it, you kind of go, I was surprised by the ending. I didn't expect that. But now that I look at it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it was written into the beginning. Yeah, that these things logically led one to the other. And so even though I may not like this ending or I disagree with it or I wish it was different, I still understand that why it happened. Why did you pick this story for your first episode? I thought it was good. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, when I was writing this one, it was the, there was the first version was quite a bit longer. Um, I, I thought that I thought that I'd really nailed this one. I thought as as I was running, I was like, "Man, this is the best one. This is amazing." Uh, and then I sent it to Zane, and I think I had my partner read it as well, and they're both just like, "Yeah, this is really long. This, this is yeah, this is you, you. You need to edit this one." And that was like. I got more notes on this one than most others uh, in the first mm. season. 
where it was just like, yeah, you really tried to make this your big, really thought out story. And I had repeated phrases and some symmetry, you know, and it was much longer and all that. And it was just like, no, no, you don't need that. It was one of the later stories I wrote for this season. And it was educational, I guess into the amount of flair to put into one of these stories versus the amount of actual payoff to it. You can have some flair and some artistic license and stuff with a longer story, but in a shorter story, which most of the stories in this time tend to be, you have to kind of make it more punchy. I edited this one down, probably took out more than a third of the original length of this one and just made it a lot tighter. It felt good at that point. The first part of the episode is explaining what the deal is with the show. It's kind of an in-character, like, here's what the vibe is. Here's who I am. We'll go from here. And so that was about half the episode. And then from that point, I have stories of different length. And it was between, do I have two shorter stories or one longer story after this? And in the end, I went for the longer story. So the first episode didn't feel so scattered. I wanted people to know this is a show with narrative. This isn't just yeah. a show with exhibits. It's a show with the story behind the exhibits. As I'm sure that you and every other podcaster knows, your first episode has, it's your big chance to get someone in. My first episode has uh, probably twice as many listens as the second episode. And, you know, it gets more depressing uh, from there. <laughs> and I really just wanted to make sure that people got the vibe of the show in the first episode. I see quite a few people when they recommend the show, they go first two episodes, they're not great, but it really hits its stride. And I'm like, I didn't write them in order. I wrote, I wrote these out of order. I don't like hitting its stride. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe the first two episodes aren't as good. I can't, I can't possibly tell. Just to commiserate with you, I think I've got three times as many listens to my first episode of Book of Constellations than the final one. Yeah. You know, and that's okay. I, at first I, I, I kind of, oh, yeah. But it's like, you know, not every show is for everybody. Yeah, totally. What do you struggle with? Well, one of my main problems, and it's kind of a problem that's only gotten worse, really, is that I have no idea if anything I've written is good. Mm. I have absolutely no perspective on that, which is why having a, I don't know what to call Zane, I guess creative partner or collaborator or something, just having Zane there to be like, yep, it's good. And that's mostly what the note is these days, because we're both very in sync with what Mist Home is and what a Mist Home story should be. And we talk through the broader plot lines and stuff. Zane was kind of out of contact for a little while as I was getting towards the end of writing season five. And it was difficult for me because I just, I don't know if I'm done. I need someone to say, yeah, that's good. I might need to go back to the drawing board. I can't tell people when season five's coming because nobody's told me it's good yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just have no sense of perspective on my own work at this point. I struggle with the same thing. Imposter syndrome is tough. Oh yeah, that's a big um, one. So I have to ask you though, you've got people on Patreon and people who leave reviews and people who like what you do is this not sufficient evidence but they could all be lying <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah they could all be just crazed deluded people who every single <laughs> one of the nice comments i've gotten all of my patrons they're actually my mum with a hundred sock puppets <laughs> i definitely have let myself feel good from time to time about how the show is doing. I won't pretend that I don't also look at how much better other people's shows are doing and go like, it could have been me. Because, But also, uh, I don't dwell on that because that's how you go completely insane. I feel guilty, but I don't listen to other audio dramas very much. Like I listen to a, f a few episodes of a bunch of them just to get the vibe of them. But if I listen to them in their entirety, I just, oh, I, I compare myself too much. I think of my own oh, I couldn't have done this or that sort of thing. And I just, and a lot of people can definitely relate to that. How do you measure success? 
It's difficult because I know that I probably will never consider myself successful enough. <laughs> not not because I'm not because I'm arrogant, but because I uh, I'm too hard on myself. I think that I feel relatively successful. Thinking that I'm not successful in this field it would be a kind of arrogance in itself because I know how many people are in this field and how many people are trying to make their shows work and I have people listening. So that's something. Success, I think, is just seeing people talking about the show, just seeing that it's become a part of a bunch of strangers' lives. Pretty amazing. I'm very poor, but I kind of feel a little successful. Is there anything that you wish you had known about making an audio drama before you got into it? Something you can share with us? I wish I'd known about places like the audio drama subreddit and, you know, some of the other places where there's community around this before I'd started writing or producing the show, because, you know, I found out about all that stuff relatively quickly once I started releasing, but it's like, I kind of wish that I'd been part of some kind of community before I started working on Mistome. I wish that I had known that I could just ask people to be involved earlier on and, you know, I wish that I could have known that actually, yeah, I can do scenes with sound effects and characters and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, not knowing that was part of the show's growth. The layout of the museum has been described as labyrinthine and clearly shifting when no one is looking. And as such, we are unable to provide guests with any kind of map. Don't worry, though. Feedback from past guests indicates that No matter what route you take through the museum, you're sure to see some fascinating and unique exhibits during your time here, and the vast majority of visitors do eventually find an exit. So, without any further ado, let's begin our journey through the Mist Home Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality. Disclaimer, while the staff here at the Mist Home Museum of Mystery, Morbidity and Mortality do their absolute best to ensure the safety of all visitors' accidents can happen, the museum is not liable for any injury, death or crushing sense of hopelessness and despair that may occur during your visit. Enjoy your tour. There's a fun charm to Mist Home's premise. The various exhibits are clever, and the format allows for a wide variety of stories in tone, length and theme. Gilfoyle pushes past the gimmick, however to add real emotion and human depth to the fantastical objects in their museum. You can listen to the Mistholm Museum of Mystery, Morbidity, and Mortality on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them, and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. 
I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.